The way of our old selves is to think, I will take what is not mine and I will supply my own needs or my own greeds through theft. But in utter contrast, the new self says, I will work as effectively as I can, not only to supply my own needs, but so that I can help supply the needs of others. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And Jonathan, it sounds like what you're saying is as we come to Christ and as we become that new creation, as he's working in us, our priorities change. And we begin to not only look out for number one, but we begin to look out for those around us wanting to meet their needs as well. It's so unnatural to us, isn't it? I mean, just speaking personally, the, the natural inclination is towards selfishness, isn't it? Yeah. And the Spirit of God within the heart of the believer begins to change that. And you see it in Christian community in beautiful ways where people are, are generous, recklessly generous, giving to one another, setting their own needs aside and figuring out ways to be serving one another. And you look at this and you say, where does this come from? And of course, it comes through the gospel of grace. It is amazing to see that transformation happen. But for the person who says, I am not as generous as I would like to be, you know, I I know I'm called to probably be more generous than I am. Is there a way for me, a tangible thing I can do to fight that selfish nature? Well, I would say a couple of things just from Ephesians that we're looking at. I think we need to first really grasp in our hearts and remind ourselves of the generosity of God in Christ. And Paul has been talking a lot about that in Ephesians. We've been talking about it in this series, and you can go back and catch up on that. That's one thing. Remember the gospel of grace and the generosity of God. But the other thing is, I think we need to listen to the call of the Word of God to do this, and by the help of the Spirit, try Paul is unembarrassed about just saying, hey, go and do this. And he's confident that God will help us do it if we seek to be obedient. Well, as you just said, we can't always go back and listen to previous broadcasts in the series to catch up on anything you may have missed. The website, EncounterTheTruth.org. You can always do that after you finish listening to today's program. But right now, let's uh, grab our Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue the message, Putting Off the Old Self. Here is Jonathan. Falsehood, anger, now comes theft. Verse 28, notice with me. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something useful to share with those in need. It's amazing how normal it is in our world to take things that don't belong to us. In the age of internet shopping, porch piracy is becoming a real problem in some areas. Thieves following the delivery van to pick up Amazon parcels left on the porch before the owner gets home. That's the latest threat. But most of us have probably had a car or a house broken into at some stage. Many have experienced theft firsthand. Now, as Christians, we're probably sanctified enough that we wouldn't participate in brazen theft like that. I hope not, at least. But other types of theft are actually more common and more subtle and probably more of a temptation for us. There's theft of time from our employer, and no one knows how much that adds up to. There's theft from the government through tax evasion. The U.S. government estimates that it loses $450 billion a year in revenue that way. See, those types of theft, they're thoroughly normalized. And I expect they are much easier for us to justify to ourselves, much easier to participate in. But the gospel calls us to a higher standard, and it tells us to renounce all kinds of theft. 
It's said that during the Welsh revival of over a century ago, the employers, mostly the mining companies, because mining was the main industry in Wales, the mining companies had to tell workers to stop returning stolen tools because they were just overwhelmed by the deluge they were receiving. As thousands upon thousands of people came to Christ through a great outpouring of the Spirit, as those people began to put off the old and put on the new, they realized that things needed to change. And maybe for us, as we think about this now, maybe as we're confronted with this very simple and quite obvious challenge, maybe the Lord has actually brought something to mind for you, some practice with your work or some habit with your accounting, something you just need to stop doing and something you need to put right. Maybe you're a pretty new Christian and you're just figuring out the dynamics of this new life and you see that there are some things in this area, some things you hadn't even noticed before that really need to change. And there's a degree of integrity you're being called to that you've not known before. And maybe that is your simple and your clear takeaway this morning, a very practical step that the Lord is calling you to undertake even today. The flip side of stealing, the alternative is, of course, verse 28, to work for what we have, doing something useful with our own hands to provide for our own needs. Now, again, the reason Paul gives us here for this call is quite fascinating. Notice why he calls us to stop stealing and instead to generate income through work. End of verse 28. He calls us to do that, that he may have, that is the one who used to steal, that he may have something useful to share with those in need. You see, the way of the world, the way of our old selves is to think, I will take what is not mine, what I have not worked for or earned, and I will supply my own needs or my own greeds through theft. Sounds convenient. But in utter contrast, the new self says, I will work as well as I can and as effectively as I can, not only to supply my own needs, but almost more importantly, so that I can help supply the needs of others. See, it's a total reversal. It is a radical transformation in outlook and approach, and it is something that only the gospel can make happen in the human heart, something that only the generosity of God himself, written on our hearts by the Spirit, can ever generate. Now, in light of all that, I think that verse 28 is really quite a challenging verse for us, not just for a few of us. I think it's a challenging verse for all of us. You see, many of us will start reading verse 28 and hear the call to stop stealing, and we will say, this one is not for me, this is not my issue, let's move on. But actually, setting aside the practice of stealing is only 50% of what Paul is saying. The other 50% is to embrace work for the sake of generosity. And I reckon that most of us still have some way to go in catching up with the new life in Christ on that particular point. I mean, I know that most of us are gainfully employed, and I trust that theft is not a widespread problem in our community of believers here at the Met. But I do wonder if our outlook on work is really this. I want to work hard. I want to generate a decent income. And I want to do that in order to be able to be generous with my brothers and sisters. Am I motivated to work, not simply so that I can buy the toys and the experiences that I've got my eye on, but so that I can be generous with the people of God? Now, again, here, of course, Paul is calling us to be imitators of God himself. And what is God like? Well, let me remind you of what God is like. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You see, that's what God is like. God is radically, lavishly generous. God has shown us generosity in Christ, the likes of which our world has never seen. He has lavished His grace upon us. That's the gospel reality behind this call. And so, as a people remade to be like Him, we learn generosity. I wonder if we've learned that lesson of grace fully yet. I wonder if we go out to work in the morning thinking, today I will earn praise God for that opportunity, and that opportunity, now it's going to allow me to share. My work today is going to enable me to bless other people. Do we look at our, our savings when the statement comes in monthly from the bank, and do we rejoice thinking, God has given me something here that I might have the privilege of imitating Him in generosity? You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called Putting Off the Old Self, part of our series, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And we've been seeing how the Apostle Paul is highlighting five areas where we do need to put off the old self and put on the new. We're going to continue this message in just a moment, so I hope you will stay with us. If you ever miss a broadcast, you can always come and listen online. Stop at our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. But whether you listen on the radio or online, it's all made possible because of your generosity. Thank you to those who are giving and supporting the ministry. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Time Well Spent. It's written by Colin Webster, and he, in this book, talks about how we can really grow a devotional life, set aside common distractions, and make sure that our time with God is really well spent. We'd love to send you a copy as you give a gift of any amount. Find out more or give online when you come to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Fourth, we're to put off the old self when it comes to corrupting talk. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I was sitting in the airport lounge at an airport down in the U.S. a few days ago, and the guy next to me was on the phone with some business associate talking quite loudly, and I couldn't help overhear. It was one of those situations, you know, where every second word in the conversation was an expletive, just a torrent of it at full volume in the departure lounge in a crowded room. And you hear that, and after spending so much time with Christians, as I have the privilege of doing in, in my work, I'm not so used to that. And you think, what a sign that is of a heart that is spiritually out of kilter, of a heart that is alienated from God. What a sign of spiritual malaise to have that torrent of ugliness coming out of your mouth and to think that it's okay. But that's a sinful nature. That's the reality of our society and our worlds. And terrible language, crass conversation, it's just the norm for so many people in so many settings. And Paul says to us as believers, who would be no different but for the grace of God, he says to us as believers, don't let your mouths be filled with obscenity. You see, that's part of the old self. That's part of the damage and the wreckage of sin. 
No, the new self, by utter contrast, seeks to use the mouth, to use words in constructive ways, to build others up according to their needs. The redeemed person looks for opportunities to speak in ways that will benefit the hearer, that will show kindness or share knowledge or bring truth or give encouragement. And it is amazing, isn't it, how words can edify and words can bless and words can encourage, can instruct, can give strength. We've all experienced that ourselves when words of kindness and encouragement and truth have made all the difference to us have helped us through a difficult day or a hard season. If we're believers, of course, we've all had people who have spoken words of life to us, gospel words, and those words have for us made the difference between life and death. That's the practical consideration that Paul gives us regarding our speech. We, we need to edify others. But as usual in this section, there's an even bigger theological and spiritual consideration as well. Verse 30 and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If we belong to Jesus, we have received His Spirit. And if we have received His Spirit, His Spirit will never leave us. We won't lose our salvation, praise God, or alienate the Spirit within us because of our sin. But, but here is what we can do. Here is what can happen, according to Paul. We can grieve the Spirit of God. See, the Holy Spirit of God is a person. And as He lives within us and sees and witnesses and hears us saying unwholesome and unedifying things, saying things that run counter to the very essence of His holiness and His purity, the Spirit of God, yes, He can be grieved. Now, I'm not sure even how to begin to understand the depths of that sentiment, the gravity of it, that the Holy Spirit living within us can be grieved by what He hears us say. But the thought of that, it is a sobering one. And it reminds us that things between us and the Spirit of God, they are personal. He reacts to us and to our behavior. Praise God that He reacts in mercy and grace and doesn't abandon us. But how much do we lose in terms of our fellowship with God by His Spirit? How much do we lose in terms of our enjoyment of God, our help and power from God to serve Him? How much do we forfeit through grieving the Spirit? The closest parallel I can think of is a close family relationship. A child does something appalling. The parents, they are grieved in their heart of hearts. They don't disown him. They don't throw him out of the house, but they are grieved and deeply grieved. A wife witnesses her husband do something appalling. She doesn't leave him. She doesn't throw him out of the family home, but she's grieved, grieved to the depths of her being. The relationship isn't utterly destroyed, but there is an impact on the enjoyment of that relationship. There is a cost. I don't think that this idea of the Holy Spirit of God being grieved is restricted to verse 29 in the issue of speech. I'm sure that all our sin can grieve the Spirit of God. But as we're thinking back over our words and our actions today and this week and this month, where have you and where have I grieved the Spirit of God? What a grievous thing to contemplate. What a serious thing. What a lamentable thing. Where perhaps as you reflect... Do you need to set things right with the Lord by His Spirit that your fellowship with Him, your enjoyment of Him might be restored?
Where have you grieved him? And where do you need to seek his grace and his restoration? Finally, we need to put off the old self when it comes to bitterness. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, get along with every form of malice. I think it's no mistake that this admonition comes at the end of Paul's list in this section. It's no mistake because I think Paul here touches on something that is very, very slow to change in the life of the believer. Very, very slow to go away. Remember, Paul is talking here about relationships within the body of Christ. Verse 25 makes that clear. And he insists that bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, and every form of malice have got to go. And he's taking the time to say that because he knows that those things exist and persist within the fellowship of believers. You see, within the context of the church, within the context of the fellowship, we know we can't justify lying or stealing. There's no situation where we can tell ourselves that that kind of behavior is justified. I think we justify anger in certain situations, as we talked about a few moments ago. We probably justify it far more than we ought. But most of these behaviors in the passage we can't and won't justify. But the ugly package of verse 31, we somehow do manage to justify. And I think our logic goes something like this. If there is a Christian whose behavior is bothering me, if there is an issue in church life that is troubling me, if there is something within my Christian community that is not as it should be, I then have this kind of spiritual obligation to be indignant until it is made right. I am justified in being bitter because this person, this thing, it is a blight on the church. See, I don't like a fight, but I, I have an obligation here to get involved in a little bit of brawling. I don't like to do anyone down. That's not my character. But this person is a problem. <laughs> and the rest of the church, they need to know about it. I don't think of myself as a malicious person. No, no. But I am going to work night and day, I will tell you, to do what it takes to put that brother, to put that sister in their place. And I'll do it for the good of the church. And somehow this toxic package of behavior, somehow we justify it. We somehow convince ourselves that it is not only acceptable, but necessary. You see, this is a holy cause, we tell ourselves. And of course, we're always convinced that we are on the side of righteousness. And if you've been around church life long enough, and if you've been involved in any form of Christian leadership, I imagine you will know exactly what I am talking about. And this is an area where we need the Lord to do a gracious work of transformation in us. This is an area, I believe, where many of us will see a, a call to personal repentance. Common as it may be, this kind of outlook, this kind of behavior, it is part and parcel of the old nature, of the old me, and it has no place among us now. But the new nature, well, it looks very different, wonderfully different. The approach to difficult people in difficult situations, it's radically transformed by the gospel, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
See, this call to kindness and to compassion, it's not just a generalized call. It is a specific and a particular call to replace our bitterness and our brawling and our slander against that very person who troubles us and annoys us. It is to replace all that with grace toward that person, with kindness toward that person. What can I do to serve and to encourage, to edify, to build up that person? What can I do to speak well of that person? It's a call to compassion. Where is this person weak and I can help them? Where are they struggling or immature and I can serve them? It's a call to forgiveness. Where have they sinned and I can forgive them and extend grace to them? And here's the kicker. Here's the reminder that makes us ashamed of our meanness, or at least it should make us ashamed of our meanness. Here is the reason we should do all these things. End of verse 32. Notice it with me. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. It's hard to get around that one, isn't it? You know, everything in the Christian life comes down to the gospel. Everything comes back to the cross. All our relational troubles and tensions within the church would be resolved, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here one little bit. I think they would be resolved if everyone involved simply remembered and lived out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were lost sinners, remember it. We were lost sinners sitting under the richly deserved righteous anger of God, destined for an indescribably awful future that we deserved. And in his sheer kindness, in his sheer grace, God gave his beloved son to die for us to pay the price of our guilt, our wrongdoing, to purchase our pardon with his blood. And in Christ, God forgave all the appalling things we have done. He forgave the awful, the unspeakable offense of our rebellion against him and our refusal to acknowledge him as God. And he did it out of the depths of his love and kindness and compassion. Now, that's the bedrock. That's the foundation of our existence as believers. And then someone comes along and kind of rubs me up the wrong way in church life. Someone in the Christian community offends me or dents my pride a little bit, and I'm ready to slander them. I'm ready to fight them. I'm ready to undermine and well-nigh destroy them. And the only plausible explanation for that hypocrisy is that I have forgotten the gospel. The only plausible explanation is that I have forgotten what God has done for me in Christ. And so Paul reminds us. He reminds us of gospel truth, of what Christ has done for us and who he has made us to be. And he calls us today to be who we are. Putting off the old, living out the new, so friends, let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord by His Spirit would do that very thing in us and through us in the days ahead. Jonathan Griffith sent our message, Putting Off the Old Self, part of our series, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And if you missed any broadcast in the series and you want to listen again, come to EncounterTheTruth.org. 
You know, as you give a financial gift of any amount and support Encounter the Truth this month, we want to send you a book called Time Well Spent. It's all about developing our daily devotions. And Jonathan, why do you think it's so important for us to daily spend time in God's Word with Him? Well, if we're wanting to be serious about the Christian life and grow in relationship with Jesus, there's nothing more valuable we can do than develop the rhythm in life of listening to Him in His Word and responding in prayer day by day by day. It's a simple thing, but it's not always easy to get into that rhythm and that habit. And this little book is just an encouragement to do that, help to overcome some obstacles in doing that. And we just think it'll be such an encouragement and such a help if you're wanting to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book, Time Well Spent, a practical guide to developing your daily devotions as you give a financial gift of any amount. You can find out more or give online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or go to EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.